get that question a lot. Like, what is community? And my favorite response is that community is not a what, it's not a noun. It's actually a verb. It's an action. So a lot of times we think, oh, where can I find my community? What communities am I part of? I'm not in a community. I feel really lonely. And that really removes the agency that I think of when I think about my role within community, like what community means to me. At Flock Studio, community is something that happens when people show up time and time and time again. Welcome to the Wonder Podcast. It's your host, CCB, with another conversation with another interesting character, I'm going to say. And I say character because we're all characters in our lives, and this particular life has a lot of joy and a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of community. I'm going to let Sloan Leo explain a little bit more what community means and let us all know that we had the good fortune of meeting Sloan Leo at IIDA Leaders Breakfast, where Sloan Leo gave the inspirational kind of morning conversation. And truthfully, people walked out of, they always walk out of the Leaders Breakfast feeling inspired, but there were people that were kind of bouncing off the walls, being so, so motivated in a way to smile and, you know, feel a little bit more joy. And I could not help but send a note to Sloan Leo and say, could you please join us? Because I'd love to share, we love the opportunity to share that kind of enthusiasm for life with uh, with our listeners. So welcome, Sloan Leo. Thank you so much for joining us. Introduce yourself. Thanks so much, CCB. I am thrilled to be here. I love the IDA community. It was a wonderful, wonderful breakfast experience for me also. And I also left feeling a lot more joy and a lot more sense of possibility. My name is Sloan Leo, my pronouns are they, he, and I'm the founder and lead facilitator at Flox Studio. The best way to understand what I do now is to understand how I got here a bit. So I'm just, like, just two sentences about like a little bit of how I got here, which is that growing up, my dad worked at Kodak and my mom was a facilitator for the State Department of Education, amongst other things in her role there. So for the last, I don't know, 40 years of my life, I've been a facilitator in different ways. And now I run a studio that does facilitation and strategy for folks who are trying to design with community. So uh, I was so curious as I you know, left the conversation at the IIDA breakfast and I went back and looked at Flock Studio. And just as a note to everyone, we'll have links to all of the references that Sloan Leo mentions and to the studio. So don't worry about trying to find these things because we'll help you find them. However, that being said, when I went and looked at your website, first off, I was struck by the continuation of the joy and the sense of possibility by the visuals. And then I was struck by the fact that it's so based on community. And I'd love for you to define what does community mean to Flock Studio? It's one of my favorite questions. So I get that question a lot. Like, what is community? And my favorite response is that community is not a what. It's not a noun. It's actually a verb. It's an action. So a lot of times we think, oh, where can I find my community? What communities am I part of? I'm not in a community. I feel really lonely. And that really removes the agency that I think of when I think about my role within community, like what community means to me. At Flock Studio, community is something that happens when people show up 
time and time and time again. We started off as practice of community. We started off in my living room in January 2019. I had this like loft apartment on Madison and 28th in like Midtown Manhattan. And I got the apartment because I knew I wanted to host these gatherings to explore design, innovation, social justice, nonprofit management, retreat development. And I did the crazy thing, which was to put on Eventbrite, hi, I'm looking to host an event about sustainability and design and community. Come to my house and hang out. Now I should let you know, CCB, it was a very New York apartment. So the living room area could host like 25 folding chairs, but my bedroom was about like maybe three feet tall and involved crawling up some stairs and like laying kind of sideways to crawl my way into bed. But people showed up. And over the course of 2019, we had one of these dinners about almost every month. And over the course of that year, 200 people showed up at my house. So community to me was like people who show up, people who are committed to reweaving is another definition. That definition comes from Hill Malatino's book, Trans Care. So it's like people who are willing to create connection, to heal, to repair, and to find ways to move forward together. I completely appreciate that definition. And I wanted to say, when I was thinking about talking to you, I said, what is community and why now? And why now? I mean, to me, that's like a very obvious why now, but you could you go a little bit deeper into the why now? Why, why are you so motivated now? We started the studio as a project that wasn't going to be a business. It was just like I wanted to have more community to talk about the things that I'm curious about with people who share the curiosity. And then in January 2020, I got laid off. In Feb 2020, I moved into a new neighborhood. And then by March 2020, I was like actively getting divorced, totally unemployed in a brand new neighborhood, and then lockdown in New York City right? I was in like a personally acute moment of like crisis and development. And so were a lot of other folks, but for different reasons, right? The pandemic lockdown really revealed to us all the ways that our communities were limited and that we had become so isolated even before the pandemic, right? Like, especially in places like New York, where you think you can do so much on your own, you have your food delivered by to your house, you go out and do your thing. Like there wasn't a sense of like deep connection, And what the pandemic revealed was a need for that connection because we didn't know what we were facing. We were lonely. We were scared. And the challenges that have emerged since 2020 in a really acute way, like climate change, like the wildfires, the heat disasters, the crazy moment in New York City when the air was so thick and orange that I was like, I don't know where to go next. The challenges we're facing as a species are collective challenges, And this idea that we can somehow show up independently to solve them is a myth that I personally agree with in capitalism. But, you know, you take your own analysis. We aren't going to solve climate change independently. We're not going to solve global poverty and economic inequity alone. We're not going to solve issues around disability access by ourselves. They are all ecosystems that require collective responses. So you've you've focused on the the social justice, the social equity, social economy, the, those folks to be part of your community building or be the focus of your efforts, which I think is really interesting. And if you look at your list of clients on your website, it runs across a 
broad spectrum of social entrepreneurs, if you will, but also educational institutions. And just what you've said makes me so desirous of seeing you involved in seeing Flock Studio involved in more of the corporate. Is that a, is that a goal that you even are interested in? It's an awesome question, CCB, and one that I've spent a few years now figuring out, right? Like I'm a first-time entrepreneur in a lot of ways. I've started small projects and like business ideas, but I always, I spent, you know, the first 15 years of my career working in nonprofits, doing strategy, doing fundraising, doing governance. And the what I've realized over the last three years of running Flox is that we are actually for a lot more people than nonprofits. We are specifically working with mission-driven leaders who want to have values aligned organizational structures. So that looks like we have right now a corporate client known. They're a financial services firm building the wealth of the global majority. So that's like brown, black and brown folks. And they are one of our first corporate clients. And I really want to give them a shout out because they said, you know, we're going to build the next BlackRock, the next big financial services firm. And we want to do it differently. We don't want to do our annual planning, our evaluations, our staff retreats the same way. We want to infuse them with the values of the social justice world. And that's what I find really exciting as far as growth for our studios. Over the last three years, we've had about 20 clients. We've grown from like me in my uh, studio apartment in Bushwick, where I had one client, which is the Wikimedia Foundation, to now having a roster of six clients or so kind of every, every cycle we do our work. And grown from, you know, zero dollars of revenue to nearly a million dollars in gross revenue in a team of eight people. And now we're setting our sights on bigger projects. Like, how can we work with an organization like a Google, like a Miller Knoll, to really say, how do you gather differently? How can we use conversation and relationship connection, social justice values to advance the work of your institution? And uh, given all of the external context and the pressures and the factors that we're all facing, it feels like it's a great time. It, but I had this this other kind of curious thought that, you know, how do people find you and how do you find people? And that to me is, you know, there's the, uh, you know, the laws of attraction, but there's also, you know, what intention goes behind finding not only the right clients to work with, but the right people to work with. I love that question. You know, CCB, I spent a lot of my life feeling isolated, right? Like I'm black and I'm fat and I'm neurodivergent and I'm trans and like all these identities, all these kind of social identities that made it hard for me to feel like I was part of like a mainstream community. And I went to my dad one time and I was like, dad, you know, like I just want to find my people. Like, how do I find my people? And my dad looks at me and he goes, sometimes you have to be a beacon. You have to be the lighthouse. And people then can find you. And I took that advice very seriously over the course of my life. So when I first started off kind of working in my career, I remember the local paper, I grew up in Albany, New York, CCB, and the paper of record is the Times Union. And the Times Union had these blogs. This is when blogs were new. So like, you know, not to date myself, but to say. And I was like, I'd like to be, I wrote them a cold email and said, there's no black professionals writing blogs for your news outlet. And I know that there are black professionals in this city who want to work together, who deserve professional development and should be seen. And they were like, sure, random person. And I got this blog. And so I used that opportunity to then build future opportunities. I started writing for the Huffington Post. I started writing for Levo League. And now I'm a contributor over at Forbes talking about community design and leadership. So I spend a lot of energy finding opportunities to get the, my voice out there so folks can find me. 
and finding the studio has a lot, a lot of it has looked like doing events with folks like IIDA, speaking at the Queer Design Club, speaking at the Design Trust for Public Space in New York City, working with the Van Allen Institute and finding other folks who are curious about this intersection between design and community. And then luckily, I've been able to make some great new friends, folks like you who say, listen, I've got a platform. I think what you're doing is great. And I'd love to have you involved. I am sincere in my statement here that I hope many people listen to this and hear and reach out to you uh, and have more conversations because truthfully, the work that you're doing, when you see a room of 500 people all walking out smiling, I mean, I like to have tears, you know, running down my eyes, my face, because I was just like, this is this is spectacular. And I said to you, gosh, I wish there were more people like you. And you said that it takes all kinds of people. And I was like, okay, <laughs> you're right. And, you know, but you can have ideals. <laughs> I mean, you can. Okay. So when I was looking at your process as compared to design thinking process, and I just do that from our, des- our design conversations, design thinking is a very uh, iterative process that kind of is, it, it continues to flow. And the flocks kind of process does a very similar thing. However, at the end, you say transition out of project. So I kind of want to walk us through and say what, from the very beginning, when you identify community, the community of the, the conversation, you then co-identify priorities. And I wanted you to help us understand the co-identification process. What does that mean? So when I started getting curious about design, I went to IDEO.org's website. They had like IDEO University. And this was, you know, eight or nine years ago, I started getting curious about design thinking. And I looked at the human-centered design process. And then I spent a lot of time, as just like in my free time after work, before work, on my lunch break when I had my full-time job, trying to parse out what should be different at every stage of the design journey to insert more mutuality, to insert more community, to insert more feedback cycles. So when we get a new client and they come to us and say, you know, we want to have a new strategic plan, like the new school, which is one of our big clients right now, what we know is that the defining of what is the need and what is the challenge and what does the output need to be so often comes from like two or three people in leadership, right? The new school was ahead of the curve and that they had had a whole steering committee with staff, students, and faculty to help define, like, we need a strategic plan, but to what end? But then we go in and we, we meet with those stakeholders really early in our process. We do interviews with sometimes up to 25 people to get a sense, like, that's what our discovery process is, to say, is there actually alignment between your organizational community and the proposal you sent us? We identify where there's discrepancies, and then we find ways to respond to the community to say, this project will address these, but it won't address these issues. So we do a lot of that in discovery through interview. And then we continue that along the whole process. And I just want to note that you talked about the transition out. And that's a big site of difference for us as a studio is that we look at our work as capacity building. So for a lot of our clients, even if we're running an annual team retreat, we offer facilitation training so that by the end of our engagement, there's new capacity within your organization to be better at having the conversations that matter. In many moments in my career, I've actually felt that way, that the smartest thing to do would be to work myself out of a job by increasing that that level of capacity and knowledge and ability within others. But really, truthfully, it is about, do you leave the place better? Do you leave the, the community better? Do you, Have you given something back or something in addition? That's why there's so many kind of 
parallel thinking that I hear from you that I was just so delighted to to have you explain in your own words the the value behind affirming new directions with community. So what when you're when you get there, I'm sure across the spectrum there the communities are in different places if from awareness from kind of recognition. And what does it look like when a new direction is affirmed? Well, part of that is aligning on the fact that there is a new direction that has emerged. So let me think about like a really great example of this. In a project that we had done with the National Institute of Reproductive Health, it was right before the Roe v. Wade decision, maybe a year and a half. And they were, we were working with their board of directors on the issues of governance, issues of diversity, equity, and inclusion. And they originally had like been thinking about how else they could really engage their community and their board in the work of equity and inclusion, like across their organization programs. And as we are having conversations, new ideas start to emerge, right? And so then we have to hear those and you have to really look for those as a facilitator because oftentimes it's someone who speaks quietly. It's something that's like unspoken, but you can feel it in the room. And this is also just me as like a longtime facilitator. It feels very natural and intuitive to be like, I heard a new idea. But then we go back and we use more like aesthetic and traditional design to create a presentation deck or a tool or an experience that reflects back to the community, the board, your team, what have you, that says, this is what we heard. Did you hear that too? Right now we're going into a retreat next week with Swipe Out Hunger. They're working to end food insecurity on college campuses. We're going to be working with their board and their staff to develop what's called a theory of change. Like how do you use your resources to get the outcome in the world that you want? In that conversation, they're going to be coming up with like, who could we be five years from now? And how might we get there? And then we are going to distill those like 50 pieces of conversation and threads of dialogue into a few core themes. And the key is reflect it back to the community again and again and again, so that they're going with you. So the change that you find is much more durable. Comments keep bringing me back to the, you know, how do people find, how do you find people? Not at... I can sense that it's you know the the movement is spreading and the communication is spreading but from the standpoint of finding the right people to work with you in this is it a framework is it a filter a set of filters is what are you looking for that, because I can imagine people hearing the story will be like I think I might have to work with Fox Studio they sound fantastic what does it look like It looks like an authentic connection So I do use filters around where are you in your organizational journey, right? A lot of our organizational leaders we work with have either a brand new CEO or executive director, or they've had a significant amount of change in their executive team where there's enough room and like kind of social political will for a new approach. And that that approach should be more collaborative and more equitable. When you get those people who are on that kind of like precipice of a new idea in an organization, then they come to us and I start to say, do we vibe, CCB? Like you and I, we have a good vibe. We just like have a natural connection. There's a rhythm to our dialogues. I was meeting with a new potential client last week or two weeks ago. And we get on the phone and she was like in the middle of like a personal appointment. I couldn't see her face on the Zoom. And I told her the truth. I was like, you know, I really would love to see if we are the right fit. But I got to say, I need you to see your face. I want to take the time to really connect with you as a person. And I honestly thought, I thought I was going to just like not get another chance. And I was willing to risk that because the connection matters so much. 
And so we met again last week and now we're at the process of moving forward to a contract. Cause she was like, you know what? You told me, no, you told me that there were standards for how you wanted this relationship to look. And that allowed her to see the kind of integrity that I have as a business owner, but also as a person. So these kind of like principles are things that have guided us, whether it be about communicating bravely, embracing slowness, having people that know how to communicate care, those principles that we have on our website like, are the filter for the kind of relationships I want to hold with people. So it's as much where you are in your organizational journey as it is, do you or are you willing to embody the principles that allow for productive relationships? Again, everyone's going to be able to go to the website and kind of spend more time walking through because in 30 minutes, no one can explain everything that's going on. And there's such simplicity, such rich simplicity in the website. Uh, in the Flock Studio website. And I say that because it's so easy to read and understand. And we get, we're bombarded with communications. We're bombarded with information on a regular basis. And when you're, in a, in a sense, when one is looking for some form of answer, the simplest often tends to be the, you know, the the most attractive because help me cut through the, noise, I'm going to say. Okay, but I'm not going to go back again to this question about that's clients, the people that work with you. How do you, those people, I can imagine again, there's attraction of, oh my gosh, I'm so excited about this. And the more that people hear about Block Studio, the more that people might want to, you know, become a part of it. And how do you look for those people? We got a lot of traction over the last couple of years. I think some of it was me doing more speaking engagements, writing more articles, writing a chapter section for a book called The Black Experience in Design, writing a new chapter called Queering Design for a Service Designer's Handbook. So a lot of that is like people read that stuff and they're like, that's the kind of place I want to work. So what we did last year is that we did a call on LinkedIn and said, if you've ever wanted to work with Sloan, Leo, or work with Flax Studio, sign up here. We then did a big group meeting. So we had about almost 30 people showed up to that call. And they all are people that are now part of our Floxiverse. We do invitations to them to events. And so we're cultivating these relationships right now with about 30 folks who over the course of our timeline, as we move into year four as a business, might work with us. And then we work with them to do scopes for new projects and really begin to integrate them into how we work, which slows down, which speeds up the pace of onboarding when they get involved. The, the other thing I want to say is that I really struggled actually for a bit to understand who do we hire? Like who is the right fit for talent at Flock Studio? And I was in the, I was at the end of one of our kind of like team happy hours that we had last month. I was swimming in the pool. We were all just hanging out and it dawned on me, we hire people who are in transitions. We're not the kind of studio where we're going to have like 10 full-time people. Like we may grow to that, but right now it's like the goal is like five full-time people that have great benefits and all that stuff. But We hire graduate students who have just finished their degrees in design or innovation who are like, I don't want to go work at Ernst & Young or Deloitte right away. I want to work at a small shop where I can really connect with the clients on issues that matter. We work with people who are taking sabbaticals. Like the Mari Nakano, who is the former director of the mayor's office for service design, was like, I'm taking a moment between my this job and my next job, and I want to try new things. So I want to partner with you to practice some things here. And I want to go into food justice and design. So places of exploration. And the third people we hire are people who are like, I don't exactly know what I want to do next, but I'm fortunate enough to have some space 
to like be advising people who are kind of at towards the end of their career who are like, I'm not exactly sure, but I know a lot of stuff and I want to be a mentor. I want to be a strategic advisor. So all of that energy and dynamism really fits us very well. Okay, everybody, you just heard that. If you fall into any of those three categories, we've got Sloan Leo's contact information that we're going to be able to share it with you. Now I want to go into a little bit more of the um, personal Sloan Leo, if you will go there with us. And tell us, you're an artist as well, which makes perfect sense. If you're, if anyone's sitting here listening, you will get it. But tell us a little bit more about why making things makes you feel better. Oh, I mean, where to start with that question, CCB? I grew up like a lot of um, kids who were in the gifted and talented program, very anxious. I was like a very anxious, stressed out kid. I had a really loving home. And I also was like aggressively bullied in school for being different. And I was like a little too smart for my own good and couldn't slow my brain down when I needed to just relax and focus. And I had a therapist um, in a therapeutic community when I was a kid who said, one way to slow down is to like get out of your head and into your hands. So I started making collages. I started drawing, started making puppets. My mother supported me by like going to all these like art making summer camps. And as an adult, I lost track of all of it. I just like got so cerebral again. I moved to New York City and I was like, I got to make enough money to pay the rent. The rent is due every first of the month. I can't slow down. But in the last few years, starting during lockdown, I started getting into printmaking. So I actually make risograph prints, which is this technology is like a screen print and a Xerox machine kind of like smushed together. And it's a place where I can be playful. There's less risk and I don't feel the need to know so much. So I got a risograph machine for my house, which is a very weird decision. People don't do it. They're usually for like print firms. <laughs> and I'll go upstairs on a Sunday and I'll just try to make something. I don't always know what it's going to be. The machine breaks and like the instructions are like in Japanese that I'm like on Reddit trying to figure it out. But it's just that room for like two hours of adventuring where I don't know what's going to happen next. And that process of like, I'll take a photo on my phone, print it on a Polaroid, scan the Polaroid into the machine and print it in four different inks. The hyper processing slows me down and gives me just like this weird kind of tickle of satisfaction that is a sensation I kind of chase. And if I didn't have to work, I probably would make a lot more prints. <laughs> okay, well, you know, there's always time. Time is absolutely, you know, what one of our, you know, biggest gifts and most precious commodities. And I, I always share that with myself. I have to remind myself of that same thing. I wanted to ask, I just actually had the great good fortune of being in Santa Fe, New Mexico for a weekend to visit with some friends. And I was reminded of when I lived there, why it slowed me down. And it slowed me down because of the absolutely beautiful nature, but also the very, it's, it's high desert and low color. So it's this combination of just calming uh, to slow down that, you know, that constant speed of thinking and speed of movement. And then I know we each find our places or our, our uh, activities that help us get that slowing and that kind of reflective time for reflection. Given the fact that we're coming on the end of our 30 minutes, I wanted to ask you the question about Sloan Leo never slows down, really. There's this constant you know, thinking and constant iterating, constant questioning. And what... I kind of want to say, what does the future bring? But that's such a silly question because we never really know. But how about if you take 
the watermelon project and move that into the future for us. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, a watermelon for Leo was a mixed media installation piece I did um, in New York City the fall of lockdown 2020. And the gallery, Pen and Brush, and Don Delicat, who's the executive director there, really prioritizes work by women and gender nonconforming people. And when I said I had an idea, basically Don had seen me do this piece of video work around watermelon and public blackness and the experience of race and gender and said to me, listen, we've got this 1200 square foot space. How would you transform it? I turned it into a series of stations that were related to my grandfather and my grandmother who were church people. They were like, my grandfather was a minister. My grandmother was the first lady of the church. And that work where I got to explore objects in relationship to gender and race and religion and family as I think about like what that would look like in the future, it's actually about facilitating an experience in a space that allows you to like reveal what it means to move from being an individual to a part of a community or a collective. So right now I'm talking to some lighting designers who I want to do like experimental facilitation by using lighting design to move people kind of like wayfinding their way through a very large kind of all white box space to go again from that individual to the collective. So I think that even though the Watermelon for Leo project, I wouldn't do exactly the same way. That idea of moving and realizing that we're part of a whole, that will continue in my work until I think the day that I'm not here. Well, I don't even want to think about the day that you're not here, Sloan Leo. However, it is time for us to end this. So I'm going to say thank you so very much. <laughs> Thanks so much for sharing. And Thank you. One of the beautiful things about the um, the Wonder Podcast is that it is um, it is snackable. It is like these moments of sharing that people can access and then do more research and find more about uh, the people that we're talking to because we I love people that have wonderful stories and that are doing wonderful things. And Sloan Leo, you are one of those people. Thank you very much. Thanks, CCB. This is awesome.